HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Okay, ready to go. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be kicking off a little series on water. Because uh, even though I have already talked about water about five years ago, I feel like it's a good moment to update folks on what is happening to the water quality and water supplies in these United States. And to that end, I contacted senior attorney Valerie Barron from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, and she uh, speaks to a multitude of problems that beset the most basic of human rights, clean drinking water. That's what that's what it says on our website anyway. So, um, so Valerie, thank you so much for joining me uh, today uh, to talk about this most important subject. Um, let's start with talking about the greatest threats to safe drinking water in the United States. Are they chemicals? Is it agricultural runoff? Is it sewage? Is it bad infrastructure, heavy metals? I don't know. There's so many options. Well, Katie, thanks so much for having me here and for tackling this really important and pressing problem. Um, you did hit on what some of the biggest problems are facing our drinking water system. And I'll just say a couple of words about what two of the biggest threats are. Mm -hmm. First, there's a class of chemicals called PFAS. Yes. They are forever chemicals. Yeah, you may have heard of them. It sounds like you have. We're going to talk about them in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and PFAS and lead are two of the biggest threats that are facing our drinking water system. So these forever chemicals used in products like nonstick coatings and waterproofing um, and lead, which is something that we've known for a really, really long time, is a potent developmental neurotoxin. But we still have six to 10 million households that are basically drinking their water through a lead straw. Industry estimates wow. that as many as 20 million people could be served by these uh, what are called lead service lines. Mm -hmm. So the president has called for $45 billion to replace lead pipes. Uh, we support that. There are millions more people that are facing other problems from their drinking water, but those are, those are just a couple of threats that everyday Americans are facing. 
Can I stop you for one second about the lead? Because there are certain, I live in Rhode Island now, and I know, for example, in Westerly, Rhode Island, they did a huge capital improvement project in their town and they replaced all of the main lines. They took all the lead piping out and they replaced it with whatever they use, you know, PFC or whatever, PVC. But I also know that, for instance, in Providence, they've done a lot of that work, but the lines that connect households directly to the water mains that are in the street remain lead. And those are the responsibility of the homeowners. And Uh so I'm wondering if you have any insight into um, federal assistance or state assistance to homeowners in replacing those direct lines from their homes to the water main, because that seems like a huge impediment to getting lead out of the drinking water systems. Well, you really hit the nail on the head. And I will just say, you know, I don't think that those pipes should be the homeowner's responsibility. So, you know, the neighborhood that I live in, in Washington, D.C., we have a really high density of those pipes. It's called lead service lines. Mm. We also have other pipes that go to our house, like my gas line. And when there's a problem with the gas line, the uh, the gas utility doesn't call me up and say, hey, you, you've got a leak. It could could send the whole neighborhood up in the smoke. But we really think you ought to get on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take out a loan. Take, Make yes. it happen, girl. <laughs> And, you know, and if we really want to stretch this analogy further, they, they, if we were to take this analogy to the gas sector, they might even say, well, we're not so sure it's a problem, even though you and I and anybody, anybody with some common sense knows that if there's a gas leak, it's a huge problem. Well, lead really isn't all that different. There's no amount of lead that is safe for anybody. You know, even in adults, um, lead can cause cardiovascular or renal problems, but it's especially dangerous for children in developing brains. Um, and homeowners didn't put those pipes in. A lot of times it was mandated by code that lead pipes connect the main to the house. And it's really dangerous when you leave only half a, a lead pipe in place, which is what's called a partial lead service line, which is what I think you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are plenty of cities out there where they've taken out the whole pipe. And we think that water systems really need to take out that whole pipe and that this $45 billion called for by the president should be used to replace from start to finish the the entirety of the lead pipe at no cost to homeowners. Because we know when that doesn't happen, the burden doesn't fall evenly on the population. Of course. People of color and poor people are much more impacted by, by these problems. Absolutely. Anybody of low or middle income doesn't have the extra, you know, umpteen thousand dollars to do that kind of work because it involves a lot of work. It's, you know, getting a backhoe in, digging something up and breaking concrete. And I mean, who knows what. So, but what about, um, do you, well, let's talk for a second about that $45 billion. Do you think the $45 billion, that's not just to mitigate lead poisoning, that's to address all of our drinking water quality problems. And lead is just one of many. So how much do you have any insight into what percentage of that is going to be addressed toward lead, refitting lead pipes? Or is it, you know, or or is that just a, a you know, whatever, it's just a little fraction of what's going to be part of that $45 billion allocation? Well, the $45 billion allocation is actually a fraction of a $111 billion um, dedication to drinking water infrastructure. So about $45 billion would go to lead service line replacement, which is really important, as we just discussed. $56 billion would be for um, drinking water and surface water projects. Mm -hmm. And another $10 billion would be for um, primarily for PFAS issues. Mm -hmm. 
I see that I didn't actually, I think I must have thought I would be talking about PFAS with somebody else, but um, we will talk about it because actually PFAS, although I think that water quality issue is kind of um, particularly acute in states like North Carolina, where the Dow DuPont Shabor uh, chemical triumvirate has been dumping their PFAS residue into the, you know, Cape Fear and various other rivers for, oh, maybe 50 years now. Um, what other parts of the United States have been aff- affected by that? Military bases, I know, because of the um, firefighting foam that gets sprayed on a regular basis. But where else has PFAS become a, a huge issue uh, in drinking water? PFAS is probably in your house. Whoever you are uh, listening to this, you're probably exposed in some way. This is a class of chemicals called forever chemicals, and they're used for things like nonstick coating and waterproofing, but you really have to think about the whole life cycle of the product. So it's not just when it's in your home, it's then, you know, end of use issues too. So these things are traveling all across the country, all across the world, really. Um, And there are major issues with drinking water, whether it's near a production site or industrial site, like you mentioned, or in the everyday products. Um, that are floating all around our our homes and work environments. Yikes. That's very alarming. You know, it's interesting to me that, I mean, I know we're going off on a tangent. This is why I have to have an outline, Valerie, or we never get (laughs) to the show. It's not for you. It's for me. Um, But just to stay on the PFAS thing for one one more second, um, you know, it is interesting to me that this has only just in the last few years, I'd see less than half a decade, uh, has surfaced as a major component in drinking water contamination throughout the United States. Is that your? Is that also your experience of it? Or as an attorney for NRDC and I'm sure other environmental organizations earlier in your career, were you were you aware of PFAS before the mainstream media began picking up stories about it? Well, you know, as environmental attorneys, we're we're a really fun bunch because <laughs> we tend to look around and. Um, you know, between the the legal training and the environmental health issue, there's a little danger Will Robinson action that we bring to any any conversation. But what I will say is this, one common experience that I have across issues and toxins that, um, that I work on is that people really do care about the health of um, their children in particular, but the health of their communities. And so when we're all talking about PFAS or whether we're talking about lead, people want to go through the day knowing that they're safe and that the people that they care about are safe and that it's, you know, government's job to make sure that rules are in place so that that can happen. So that's that's really how I think of the connected threads, whether it's PFAS or whether it's lead, these legislative opportunities in front of us are a time to, and an opportunity to make people safer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's move on for a second and talk a little bit about um, EPA standards, um, which uh, I noted that uh, EPA standards for nitrates in water, which, of course, is an agricultural runoff issue, um, nitrates being a fertilizer component, um, have not been revisited or revised since 1992. Is that kind of a lag in updating standards, kind of standard? <laughs> like, is that how long it takes, generally speaking, 20, 30 years to update standards. I'm thinking like, just to go back to the PFAS issue right there, you know, like now all of a sudden, I think people are beginning to mandate, um, you know, monitoring for PFAS, but, you know, we haven't really uh, changed any of the standards around that. And that's only just beginning to happen. So is that a 30, 30 or 40 year lag between 
revising standards something that you have observed and consider normal? Unfortunately, yes. There are many standards that have not been revised for decades. That said, I wouldn't say that it takes decades to revise one of these standards, Mm. especially with something like nitrates. You know, there's pretty widespread agreement that that standard needs to be updated. The the standard right now is 10 parts per million. uh, And that's when we start to see things like cancer, organ toxicity, and something called blue baby syndrome, which Mm -hmm. can be deadly to infants. It's when their blood, it interferes with their blood's ability to um, circulate oxygen, which we we all need to live. Um, EPA is supposed to review these standards every six years, but historically this rarely happens resulting in a stronger, more protective standard. Hmm. And why do you think that is? You know, I don't know exactly why that is. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of discourse now around drinking water. So I think there is a real opportunity. Um, You know, one example though, is that Since the 1996 amendments, EPA has actually not adopted a new standard using these provisions. The the first time they were going to do this was with a chemical called perchlorate, which is a component of rocket fuel. Uh, So not something you want to be drinking. After nine years, they ultimately decided not to do this. One solution is Congress can direct EPA to update the standards, but we are seeing a, a lot more movement now. And so I'm hopeful that this EPA will take some of these needed actions. Yeah, we're going to talk about the new EPA director at the end of the show, but I want to get through a few more questions first. (laughs) So let's just get an overview of how widespread contaminated drinking water is in the United States and where are people most at risk? So although our water systems are very good, I'm sorry to say that drinking water contamination is actually very, very common. It's like we have this massive problem lurking underneath the surface. We have tens of millions of people that are drinking water from systems that have violated the Safe Drinking Water Act. Uh, One NRDC report found that nearly 30 million people get their water from systems that have had lead violations. That means some of those systems weren't testing the way that they should, Mm -hmm. and some of them actually had exceedances. We've also found that there's just widespread underreporting. Hmm. And who would be responsible for making those reports? Is that like local water, water plant or, you know, water uh, quality? Um, I'm thinking of like the Des Moines Waterworks, for example, uh, where they had, you know, a multi-year fight and the suit was ultimately thrown out in court, as I'm sure you know. Um, the wonderful man who spearheaded that, Bill Stowe, is no longer with us. And basically the, the uh, you know, agribusiness, industrial agriculture won that round because they own the legislation, uh, the legislature in, in Iowa. So I'm wondering, um, is that, you know, is, is there a lot of um, sort of foot dragging on revising and updating standards? Is that part of um, sort of an industrial uh, model uh, to, you know, fund uh, congressional candidates uh, who are willing to turn a blind eye to that? That's a lot of questions are you, rolled into know, one. Let is. me try and bring I it down for do you. That. I know I'm horrible. Oh, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still having fun. It's just the um, way my brain works. I'm sorry. It's like a little tangle. It's a, it's a you know, it's a thicket. Yeah. Unfortunately, I know that all too well, exactly how that feels. <laughs> so one thing I will say is uh, I completely agree with you that Bill Stowe was a, a wonderful man who tried to push back against something that we see uh, throughout many of the different sectors that I've discussed with you today, which mm-hmm. is that the polluter doesn't want to pay. Many right. of the 
businesses out there, the big industrial operations that are causing these problems would rather uh, rate payers, everyday people that pay to turn on our tab, would rather that we pay to take the pollutants out of the water than to change an upstream problem, which is really much better for people and the environment. Right. Um, so we we do see that those power dynamics are reflected in the Des Moines Waterworks lawsuit that you mentioned, where while the lawsuit was thrown out, I think that we're still talking about this problem. It's not a total loss. Um, that lawsuit did do a lot to raise awareness, which of course is not enough. Uh, but yeah. we really want to see a lot of these problems solved upstream, in addition to having adequate filtration and treatment at the plant. As for whose job it is to notify, um, in most circumstances, it's the the water system's job to report these standards, but we do need much more active um, state and federal enforcement of these laws. It's a system that only works Uh, well when all of the parts are functioning properly. Interesting. Um, I'm going to move on from that because we're not going to be able to answer all of those. But one of the things that I read was also about how and this this really got my attention when these some of these chemicals some of these ag, you know industrial chemicals whether it's pfos whether it's perchlorate whether it's uh uh you know uh industrial uh, agricultural uh, runoff you know nitrates and phosphates and so on when they combine with other chemicals for instance chlorine and a neonicotinoid insecticide just to bring it back to agriculture for a second what what are the results of that? I mean, those are chemicals that those combine to form a new chemical that has apparently no one has ever done studies on. I, I don't mean if it's that one specifically, but just in general, that um, discipline of examining the confluence of chemicals and the and the third or fourth chemicals that are uh, produced uh, arising from those combinations. Who 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 is dealing with that? I mean, like what? Who's doing anything about that? Well, right now, our system does not regulate mixtures, which, as you suggested, is a big problem because the chemicals that go into the water do interact with other things that we put in. You know, chlorine that you mentioned is um, part of what's called a disinfectant. It's really important that we disinfect our water because we don't, it's not just chemicals that, dangerous chemicals we don't want to be drinking, but we don't want bacteria that could make us sick either. Sure. But even even though those disinfectants are really important, it's also critical that we examine how they interact with other things that are in the water. And you know, exactly as you mentioned, neonicotinoids, insecticides, they mix with whatever else happens to be in the water and can form new compounds that can make you sick. In this yeah. case, what we really need to do is we really need to stop using neonicotinoid insecticides for pollinators, but also for human health. And there are states that are starting to look at tackling this end of things, and that will help. That will help. But I, you know, again, it's like you have to go back to the point source, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have to, you have to convince, uh, you know, industrial agriculture that that, that is in their financial interests uh, to stop using those insecticides um, and some of the other chemicals that they apply with abandon on huge swaths of our nation's agricultural land. Um, as you can see, I'm, I'm a deep conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm like, I see a conspiracy under every rock. I, I'm a boomer. You know what I mean? I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I don't trust anybody. Um, so let's talk a little bit because, I mean, we're, I'm already like way behind schedule here in terms of how much information I want to get through here with you. I might have to have you back, Valerie. But what is the status of the Clean Water Act? And how did the navigable waters protection rule, which came in under the Trump administration, how did that change its scope? What do we have before? What do we have now? So the Clean Water Act, let's, if we go back to basics, the Clean Water mm-hmm. Act is one of our bedrock environmental laws. And right. written right into the Clean Water Act, it says that the goal, now this is the goal, is to eliminate yep. Uh, discharges to water by 1985. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and say we haven't done that yet. We're a little (laughs) bit overdue. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's all bad. The Clean Water Act has delivered really big protections to our surface waters. The so-called navigable waters protection rule, we call it the dirty water rule. It abandoned huge Uh, swaths of aquatic resources by removing these protections from rain-dependent streams and most wetlands. Yeah. That that rule is having devastating on-the-ground impacts. It's leaving critical streams and wetlands without the safeguards. Even though the law hadn't eliminated all pollution by 1985, it was was and is doing some really important things. Um, That rule really undermined protections for millions of miles of streams and tens of millions of acres of wetlands. Wow. And now I understand, I think I was reading today, possibly even, that the waters of the United States, WOTUS, um, which... um, you know, was very unpopular during the Obama administration. And then was, I guess, I guess that's what the navigable waters protection rule kind of addresses Mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Under the Trump administration. And so now WOTUS is back on the table. Um, What do you think the chances are of that um, becoming what it's meant to become, which is not a scourge for farmers, but rather, you know, a true protection for uh, groundwater for surface water, I should say. Well, I don't want to speculate, but I will just say that I'm very hopeful. All right. That's good enough, Valerie. Thanks. All right. <laughs> so so here, here, is our, um, here is my question about PFAS. Um, and I'm looking to see if uh, I missed anything. So we have described what they are um, and where they – and we've described what, how they affect people. They're a neurotoxin essentially, right? Um, and they get into the water supply through primarily runoff. Is that where they come from? Or is it from dumping from industrial sources like they do in North Carolina? Um, a, little, and- a little of column A, a little of column B. There's okay. a lot of different points along the supply chain where these things can get into the water. And then my question about water filtration, which kind of is is not just for PFAS, but for so many other things. I mean, one of, as I... As I said at the top of the show, I did a, a series of shows about water quality in the United States oh, a few years ago. I've been doing this podcast for 11 years. So uh, I remember profiling a town in Kansas uh, that was too small. Their tax base was too small for them to be able to upgrade their municipal water treatment facility. And so everyone in the town had to drink uh, bottled water, which, of course, is very expensive. Um 
And this town had voted not to do anything about this problem because so many of their residents were, in fact, farmers who were part of the pollution problem and who didn't have the means to change that. And so I guess my question about this is like water filtration systems as they exist now, to go back to the very beginning, will that be part of the $110 billion allocation fees for water treatment in the United States? Are we going to, are those water treatment plants in towns large and small, whether it's Flint, Michigan, or, or the little tiny town in Kansas, are they all going to get some federal dollars to help upgrade their water treatment systems? Is that something you see happening in the future? before the midterms? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've been calling this um, infrastructure bill the big kahuna, and it is a really strong investment in jobs and in health. And you, you touched on a number of the needs that this could address. You know, one other thing that I want to mention, as long as we're talking about small towns, is there are roughly 40 million people, give or take, nationwide, who get their water from private wells. Um, yeah. So not from I'm not one from of a them. municipal treatment system. Well, then you you might already know that the Safe Drinking Water Act does not extend protections to those private wells. So really, having the polluter stop polluting and removing um, dangerous substances at the source is critical for so many reasons. Uh, yeah. There, this eleven billion dollars does break down and could be used, especially through the revolving funds, which is um, a system for paying for these types of projects over a lot of different needs. And there really are very different needs, whether you're looking at a big city and the treatment system there or these smaller towns where one big problem can really overwhelm both the health and treatment side of the equation, health and water treatment side of the equation, exactly as you identify. Right, right. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll come right back with Valerie Barron from the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're going to talk more about um, water quality. I have tons of questions. So, um, yeah, this we could, we could go on quite a long time, but we won't. We'll, we'll, keep, it, we'll keep it brief. Um, but stay tuned. We'll be right back. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Okay, so um, we're talking water quality. We're talking with Valerie Barron from the um, Natural Resources Defense Quality. And we were just, uh, sorry, Natural Resources Defense Count Council. Is that right? You got it. NRDC. NRDC, yeah, because <laughs> I only think of it as NRDC, and then I can, you know, the, what it stands for goes right out of my, as I said, my thicket-like brain. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about what, you know, this big investment in water quality and infrastructure uh, is is going to mean in a sort of granular way. Do you think, will part of those funds, for example, go into pursuing 
polluters, point source polluters? Will there be, uh, do you anticipate uh, lawsuits, for example, coming down on Tyson, Purdue, you know, any one of the big packers, for example, they pollute a ton. Um, or, or the people like Dow, DuPont, Chamours, you know, the, the industrial uh, PFAS producers. Is there, is there, do you think that's part of the program or is it really just going to be like, we're going to replace your pipes and, you know, try to have better municipal water treatment and call it a day? So I would say that the $11 billion is a really strong investment, mostly but not exclusively in the physical systems that bring us um, that bring us drinking water. It's also an investment in jobs and in health, but we're looking at things like pipes and treatment, among other things. What you mentioned when it comes to going after polluters, that's always been a part of the um, Clean Water Act and oh. um, and other environmental laws too that were really meant to have, and the Clean Water Act uh, was meant for citizens to be the eyes and the ears of the federal government. So if citizens find that a polluter is violating that act, they can actually step into the shoes of the government and bring a lawsuit. Um, the government itself, of course, can also bring an enforcement action. And those are all really important parts of the clean water ecosystem, so to speak. Right. Um, but this jobs, this big kahuna bill with $111 billion, that is for things like replacing pipes and also uh, PFAS remediation in the water and some of the other topics that we touched on. And what about, we also touched on standards and the fact that standards are not being updated particularly quickly. Will this money also go towards reevaluating some of the topics we talked about? Say, for example, recognizing that nitrates in the water really, that hasn't been visited since 1992, or the the chemical compounds that are synthesized by multiple chemicals being eventually streamed into the groundwater or into rivers, rivers and wetlands. I mean, will that, I'm, I'm hoping that standards will be evaluated and um, recalibrated. Do you anticipate that as part of this push? We certainly hope that EPA will strengthen uh, standards for pollutants in our waterways and in our drinking water. And there's uh, very little right now that would prevent them from doing so, especially with such strong science on the particular uh, contaminants that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's let's just quickly talk for a sec before we turn to the EPA and Michael Regan. Um, what are the what would you say are the biggest impacts of climate change on drinking water and drinking water systems? So one example is that looking at the Texas situation, um, we saw the grid went down and the water industry was just not well prepared. Pipes burst water and sewage treatment plants Mm -hmm. were unable to function. We're just in great need of preparations for climate change. Drinking water and sewage treatment plants are often situated right next to rivers, which leaves them highly vulnerable to big storms and flooding. Uh, We don't have storage in a lot of water systems, so that's going to be an issue as drought becomes more prevalent. We're really seeing this in the Western US. When I think about climate change, Um, I like to think, you know, what's going to happen when we have a lot more or a lot less water? What's going to happen when we have a lot more or a lot less heat? And unfortunately, we're already starting to see some of those effects. There's a lot of strengthening and preparation that needs to happen so we can have the safe and resilient water systems that we need. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking that there's already towns in the Southwest uh, that I you know, read about, I think, either in the Times or the Washington Post, that are already talking about critical water shortages, uh, water rationing in a way that is not, I mean, we've, we've seen it in California to a certain extent, don't water your lawn, don't take a shower that's more than two minutes, you know, like that kind of stuff. But I, I imagine that there will be uh, much more stringent... Um, ways of preventing people from wasting water or using too much water. And I wondered if you had any insight into those measures that you could anticipate being adopted as the drought continues specifically and especially in the southwest of the United States and in California. I think storage would be an important thing to consider, but really we need much a much bigger look at how to strengthen our water systems and make them more resilient. And, you know, re- as you mentioned, regional considerations should be a big part of that. Yeah. And then there's no, the other thing that, and this is, I'm, I know I did not pre- preview this um, with you, but the other thing that has always struck me about um, water, uh, drinking water, but water usage in general in the United States is that the laws governing water and who owns water are, by and large, date from the 19th century. Do you, uh, as a lawyer, see any movement towards updating some of those legal aspects? I'm thinking, for instance, of how Nestle has been buying up aquifers, you know, like, I mean, uh, you know, that water is going to, is increasingly um, something that is becoming monetized and becoming a source of speculation on, say, the futures market. I believe the first futures trade in water happened just this past March. I'm going to be doing a show about that with somebody from IATP. But um, but I wondered if you had a comment about sort of the commodification of water and whether or not there will be any legal um, changes uh, that will protect the average consumer from, say, predatory companies like Nestle. This is... I work- a lot in the field of industrial animal agriculture and industrial oh, animal agriculture really? facilities. Yeah, use a tremendous amount of water. And so I yes. think one time that we can one thing that we can see as a harbinger of a bigger legal push is when we see communities across the country become concerned about the same thing. And I've certainly heard from communities across the country that they're concerned about how much water industries are using. So I think that there will be a reckoning with who's using water, how much, how we make those decisions, um, what to do when we have too little water, but also what to do when we have too much from precipitation. Mm-hmm. Right. And and again, to go back to the storage issue, because at, as it stands now, we don't have the capacity to harvest that water in these torrential downpours, which ultimately are terribly damaging to infrastructure and to cities and towns across the country. Um, I know that that's been a big issue in right here in the great state of Little Rhodey. But let's move on and talk about um, Michael Regan at the, um, at the EPA. What, what, what was the response um, to his appointment as head of the EPA from you know, groups like yours, from the NRDC and other environmental advocates? I think we were all really excited to see this new era ushered in with uh, Michael Regan at the helm. And what is he best known for? He's best known in, for his work in North Carolina, restoring faith in the agency and fighting um, for environmental justice. 
The thing is, is that North Carolina, to me, stands out as literally the toxic wasteland of the United States. I mean, the governor, the government, the legislature of North Carolina has turned a blind eye to, you know, all of the companies we've talked about with PFAS, but then also they are the hog capital of the country, besides Iowa. Uh, they've got lots and lots of chickens there, too. And I'm sure they have other, and, and, and if I'm not mistaken, they have also accepted toxic waste for dumping or burying in landfill for decades. And I just wondered if, you know, I, I understand that Michael Regan has a, a, a reputation, but I'm wondering, can you cite anything specific that he did for the state of North Carolina uh, in the last five years or what, however long his tenure was there um, before he became head of the EPA? What, how, how was he pushing back against some of those industries uh, and protecting um, the water quality of, of the state of North Carolina? Because, yeah, right. Sure. So I actually work quite closely with some of the communities in eastern North Carolina that are facing just absolutely horrific pollution from industrial animal agriculture facilities. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of hogs where they use a grossly antiquated system for managing the waste. They actually store it in huge football field size cesspools yeah, and then spray it into the air near people's homes, near schools, to apply it to land. It's awful. It's a horrible environmental injustice, and it needs to stop. Um, I always direct people to speak to community members who are much better at telling their own stories than I could ever possibly be. Well, Valerie, were you part of the lawsuit against Murphy Brown that was a landmark um, win for a community? Just a year, I'm, about a year and a I half ago. I was not part of it, but I, I do want to take this moment to remember an activist who was, who actually passed away last week, who's someone uh, that I did know. Her name was Elsie Herring, and she Oh, I, of course was, I heard of her. I did not know that. Yeah, she she passed away last week, which was, you know, of course she was much more than an environmental justice warrior, but she was a true environmental justice warrior. And while I would never in a million years speak for Miss Elsie, she would tell you that while there had been great work by the community, the protections are still grossly inadequate. Even after she died, industry still had, and may still have, I haven't checked today, attacks on her up on their websites. <laughs> I mean, these problems are unimaginable, yeah. except that they're real and they're happening in a floodplain in Eastern North Carolina. Yeah. Now, that said, when the State Department of Environmental Quality re- released their new permit for hog operations, in eastern North Carolina, which is a fancy and confusing way of saying the the rules of the road that yeah. the um, hog growers have to follow, we said, and the community said, you know, this isn't enough. Right. That the lagoon and spray field system, which is that cesspools and then literally spraying manure into the air system that I mentioned a minute ago, that that yeah. needs to go. It can't keep getting a carte blanche to operate. But yeah. when... When the Department of Environmental Quality released that permit, we we complained and we worked to make it stronger. Um, but industry industry sued, and mm-hmm. industry got their friends in the legislature to to work on that as well. So there's it's just a complicated landscape, and the community has done tremendous organizing work, which has prevented things from getting worse and resulted in really important improvements. But no one piece of this can move it forward. That said, you know, we do hope that the Department of Environmental Quality and the EPA um, really step up for communities and the environment, particularly there, but everywhere. Do you think that Michael, so to go back to Michael Regan, 
um, who is obviously all too familiar with um, particularly this this type of pollution, which is, you know, widespread in any state. Uh, that is how they manage waste in all of them, basically. Uh, it goes into lagoons. P- poultry, I-, I should have mentioned that I wrote a book about the industrial meat um, complex around the world. So very familiar with um, all of the ways in which uh, they pollute uh, their inv- their uh, surrounding communities. But they um, those lagoons are... Uh, um, I don't even know where to begin with those lagoons. <laughs> but the EPA, I mean... The EPA could be so much more active in um, addressing whether it's the pollution of spraying uh, untreated manure uh, around fields, but but also the VOCs, all of the 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 uh, you know hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. methane that are rising off of these lagoons, which are open to the air, is another aspect of climate mm-hmm. change accelerants and and pollution that makes people really sick who live around them. And, um, and I'm just wondering, you know, where, where will Regan, where will he start with this stuff? I mean, we don't even have an accurate count in this country because you don't have to list yourself as a CAFO, a concentrated area feeding operation, until you have over a thousand head of whatever it is you have, at least in the hog and cattle. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about poultry. So, you know, where, where do we start with that? There are lots of places that they could start. And you know, it's actually even a little worse than you say, which is hard to believe. This is one of those areas where (laughs) I'm afraid people, even though I'm just saying how things are, I'm I'm afraid it's not going to sound credible because things are just that bad. It's not that you don't have to list yourself as a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation, unless you have over a thousand heads, sort of depending on the animal type, which is true. But it's that literally nobody knows where all of these facilities are. Right. A a number of years ago, there was a brief and fleeting move by EPA to um, require reporting of where these facilities are. And it was a very long saga that did not end in an accurate accounting or any accounting of where they all are. So that's an important first step um, to use the Clean Water Act authority to, to show where the where the facilities are. Another important step would be, you know, how many animals they contain, what type of animal, what is the waste management system. This very basic type of information would be an enormous step, although it wouldn't be sufficient to protect communities or water. But that's a much longer conversation that I would yeah. love to have some time. But well, this, let's have this that. is emblematic. Of, <laughs> I'd be happy let's have to have a conversation another I'd time. I'd be happy I would love to. to. <laughs> So there's there's any number of actions that any number of actors could take that would really dramatically improve the water quality and air quality near these facilities and make a monumental difference for the people that live nearby. You know, I went, I was, uh, we are almost out of time here, but I will tell you that I went to a Cargill facility. I was um, the first reporter who had been inside of a Cargill facility uh, in probably 30 or 40 years. And um, this was a you know a giant processing plant. They were processing cattle, four thousand head a day. It was in uh, Fort Collins, or yeah, something like that, Fort Collins, Colorado. And they had spent about two and a half million dollars, and they were very proud of it. On creating, um, they had put a giant rubber tarp, and they were converting the meth. You know, it was a biodigester essentially, and they were converting the methane into renewable fuel and it was powering part of the plant and yada yada and they were terribly proud of themselves and of course I said well do all of your plants have this oh no 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 you know (laughs) 
you know, we're just, we're pioneering this. And in a sense, they were pioneering it because this is nearly, we're talking nearly 10 years ago. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any insight into, you know, could the EPA ultimately mandate a system, something like that? So at least even though you'd still have the lagoons, you wouldn't have as many of the VOCs um, off-gassing from those lagoons. And and given the way that we, that the, say for the hog industry works, where you have individual, essentially sharecroppers, basically. I mean, these guys are indentured servants of the big industrial animal, you know, producers. Um, can they be forced, can the, can the companies be forced to put some sort of waste management system into individual farmers, you know, guys who have 30 or 40,000 hogs on their facility, can they be forced to pay for that so that the farmer himself is not the one who's on the hook for the money? Well, there's, there's a lot to disentangle there, but I will quote one of my closest community partners who often reminds me and and others that the growers um, are caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, so they're for the victims, yeah. For listeners who don't know, um, the way that this system works is the people that in, in many sectors of the industrial animal se- agriculture um, industry, although not all, the people who grow the animals don't actually own them um, and don't often get a fair price per animal. Things are predetermined by contracts that are often predatory. Um, so there, there are just a lot of very broken pieces of this system that was sort of tailor made to help certain companies make as much money as possible. Um, and so we, we don't want to criticize farmers. No, the big companies that control the operations and set the rules of the game do need to be made to pay for the pollution that they're causing. Yes. And as for what communities nearby want, I mean, you touched on biogas, you touched on methane caps, you touched on air pollution. I mean, there are just so many challenges that communities face. And my experience is that communities want more than a tarp. They want information, yeah. they want meaningful waste treatment. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to take steps in that direction. But as as you can hear from just this one question, I mean, there are so many issues that intersect nearby these facilities. Ultimately, communities that live near industrial animal agriculture want the same thing that the rest of us want. Safe places to live with clean air and clean water. That's right. And in my opinion, that is a fundamental right, along with health care and education. So I think with that, we will leave it there. Uh, we've, well, we, have <laughs> we have rocketed through 45 minutes. I can't <laughs> thank you enough, Valerie. And p- let's do schedule uh, a time to come back and talk about what is happening in the industry. As, as the Biden administration moves forward through these, and Mr. Regan has his opportunity to, to you know, make some changes at the EPA, I'll be very interested to talk further about the industrial animal agriculture complex in this country because of its uh, tremendous impacts on rural communities in so many ways, not just pollutants. But anyway, uh, so thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your insight into Absolutely all of these very important pleasure. issues. Thank you for yeah. having me. And we'll be sending you a link to this in a day or two, if not this afternoon. And um, I'll be in touch for, for round two. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Valerie. Really Take appreciate care. your time. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.